0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello. Glad to have you with us today. This is episode number 108 of The Next Track. If you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at Next NextTrackCast. And check out our website, thenexttrack.com. Every episode has a nice batch of show notes with links to Lots of the things that we mention that we talk about. We we have very good show notes. You should definitely check them out.
1: If you haven't been checking out our show notes, we have a new thing that Apple just introduced. We can embed a player for an album onto the web page that we use for show notes. And that means that you can go to the web page for the show notes and you can play the albums that we've selected as our next tracks. Now, it doesn't always work because Doug's pick last week was a record that's not on Apple Music that he had to buy. But in the future, you'll be able to listen to the music. If you're not an Apple Music subscriber, you can listen to 30 seconds of each track. And if you are a subscriber and you sign in, you can listen to the whole album.
0: As you just mentioned, last week in my next track pick, I was talking about uh, having to buy a T-Bone Walker album because it wasn't available on Apple Music, which tells you a couple of things. First of all, I think I've become a little too dependent on Apple Music for my music. And two... I'm not buying as many CDs as I thought I was. So I, I bought this I Want a Little Girl CD by T-Bone Walker last week, and it took two days to get it. <laughs> you know, we normally when I want to hear something, I go to Apple Music, I hear it three seconds later. Now I had to wait two days for for Amazon to deliver the CD. And then I had to deal with the plastic covering. Now, I've been opening shrink-wrapped records and CDs uh, since I was a little kid, and I've always tried to get the thumbnail thing down. It's like, just depress the plastic wrap with your thumbnail, and you should be able to rip it open, and I've never been able to master that. And I used to carry around with me one of these promotional like blades that record stores or record labels would hand out. It was uh, big enough to, to slide down either the, the edge of a record or the edge of a CD and, and slice the, the plastic. I used to carry one of those around with me all the time. But I don't have one handy, so I had to go grab a knife and take the shrink wrap off the CD. And then I realized this was the first CD that I had purchased this year. Now, I used to buy probably one or two CDs a week in my heyday. And then it was down to maybe one or two a month and then maybe one a month. Now it's down to one a year so far. So anyway, I've got the CD, and it was great, but it reminded me about all of these things that you had to deal with with physical media. And here I am talking about physical media as if it was a thing that was ancient history. And yet, (laughs) the uh, the objects were so familiar to me for so long, and now it's it's become this ordeal to buy some, just to hear a CD that I want to hear a couple of tracks on.
1: It's funny you should mention unwrapping a CD. Our friend and regular guest, Andy Doe, about six years ago, made a wonderful video about how to unwrap a CD. And he shows how to unwrap single CDs, digipacks, box
0: sets, and the whole thing. And I'll link to it in the show notes. I think it's really fitting. Uh, I had not seen that until you pointed it out to me. And it is quite amusing and done in Andy's inimitable style.
1: When I worked in a, a bookstore in France for a few years, we also sold CDs. And it might have been... I don't think it was the guy who worked in the store in the CD section. I think it was a sales rep that showed me a way to open a CD. When it's a a hard jewel case, if you have a hard cornered surface like shelves in bookstores, right? You know, that sort of, not for mica, whatever it is that makes a hard edge. You just take the CD and you slice the corner across the edge of the shelf and it just
0: opens it like, you know, like butter it's really easy I've seen that I've seen that happen I've had music directors who just sit there while they're on the phone and just rip the things open like I said the thumbnail technique I had a music director who had a thumbnail and he just would sit there and rip them open with his thumb but the tool was often handy I had those all over the place. Those were dangerous. Those were those were given out by record stores. I mean, those are knives, essentially. You could slash someone with one of those. I can't believe they used to send, hand those out. Yeah, but-, but it's
1: an interesting point, and we've talked many times on the show about how neither of us buy as many CDs as we did in the past. I mentioned last week that I had just gotten some new CDs. My next track pick was Brian Eno's new set, Music for Installations, and I just got another set this week, which will be this week's next track pick. But like you were saying, you would buy one or two discs a week, and if we go back even pre-CD, and I don't know what changed, because even before I started using Apple Music regularly, I was buying less and less. I think you get to the point with a large music collection where you're buying CDs for one of two reasons. The first is that you want to collect it. You want to have it to fill in the gap in your collection, like that stamp of an emu from Australia from the 19th century type thing. And the second is because you actually do want to listen to it. But obviously, there's only a certain number of hours a day that you can listen to music. And the more you have in your collection, the less time, it, the less airplay it can get among your listening. So when you had 10 records, you could listen to each record every day if you wanted to. When you have a 100, well, you can maybe listen to, you know... Three or four a day, or five. Even if you listen to 10 a day, that's only a tenth of your collection. When you have a thousand, that's only 1% of your collection.
0: It's ironic that the inconvenience factor made it easier to listen to more music because you had to trudge to a record store or send away for a record or a CD. Remember, we used to send, I sent away for a CD this week. Um, So you're absolutely right. This is something that we've come to, to realize over the months of the show is that hmm we used to have a lot more value time quality time with our music because it was it wasn't as accessible as it is now when file downloads happened if you wanted to hear something boom you bought it and downloaded it or forget the buying it just downloaded it um you could have it immediately and this idea that you have to to wait for it and you know to kind of budget it and 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 make all those decisions uh gave you more opportunities to listen but even though you you had more time you listened to more quality music because you only owned those things that you valued uh or or considered uh ha- worth owning because of the value they had some kind of value
1: well you were telling me last week that you when you worked in radio you got tons of free records and i said to you that the problem with free records is that you don't value them you didn't pay for them You didn't trudge for them. You didn't wait for them necessarily. Um, You didn't have to find them that back in the day might have been hard to find. And that gives the music an an intrinsic value that's much less than the music that your favorite band's coming out with a new album or even a new single and you have to get to the record store to buy it because it's an import. And and I think this is the same It happens with streaming music, that people don't put value on the music the same way
0: because it's like turning on a spigot instead of being engaged with that particular item. That's exactly right. In fact, you know, we did have that conversation and essentially I was saying that, you know, I got a lot of free music. You know, the, the deliveries would come on Tuesday and the music director would just walk around the building handing out free music. And at first I didn't think that I had any sense of less value of it. But if it was... It's free music, and I would have taken CDs that were like, oh, they're interesting. Oh, uh, I might want to listen to that at some point, rather than if I had to spend my own money and actually say, well, this is, this is part of the Doug Adams collection. But if it's just something that's given to me as a gift or as Doug a Doug free... Adams signature collection. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and um, I guess you're right. In, in, the same, in the same sense, that was my spigot. It's like here's some free music, take it home and listen to it if you want. If you don't want to listen to it, who cares? It's, you know, it makes your collection look bigger.
1: And and it didn't but it didn't matter if you listened to it, it didn't matter if you liked it. You and it didn't matter some months ago we talked to James Jackson Toth about him trying to only listen to one record a week and we were discussing this that that feeling that you put a record on and it doesn't really click, but since you've paid for it, you're going to make this commitment to listen to it enough times to really understand if you like the music or not. And 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 I mentioned one particular music Brian Eno's you know, Nerve Net that I bought on a CD used in the 90s and I hated it initially. But I never got rid of it and then I took it out one day and I said, "Wow, why did I get this so wrong?" And and so there there's there's a commitment over time when you buy a CD. Now, you you can buy a record and it can suck. And you can say, "I hate this." And you can either want to sell it, throw it away, give it to someone or something like that, but if you do keep it, that means that you've said, "Well, I put my money and time into this, so I'm willing to make it part of the Doug Adams Signature
0: Collection." I remember talking my uh, myself into like, I in fact I even picked this album as a next track pick because it only had one good song on it. It's an album by Ten Years After called "What," and it's pretty humdrum. Uh, but I had to, I wanted to have more Ten Years After at the time. And so I went out and bought this record, and there's only one good song on it, and it's a live version of, of Sweet Little 16, the Chuck Berry song. It's a great cover. It's, sounds like it's from a soundtrack. It has a really grungy sound. It's the best song on the record. And I, I convinced myself that that was justification enough. That one song was justification enough for paying $14 for the, for the, uh, for the record. So it's, uh, you're right. It's sometimes you, you convince yourself that this investment you've made well, maybe someday I'll I'll appreciate it, and you put it away. But with streaming music, you can just ignore it. You can just put it away. It doesn't become yours. It's not something that you have to, you know, think about and have in your collection. And it's not, you know, you don't have to develop a relationship with it, or, <laughs> like we do with records. Or, and or CDs. worst
1: case, if you have added it to your library, when when you go through your library to cull things a year later or whenever you'll see all these records, all these albums, and you'll wonder why they're there, and you'll just delete them en masse because you'll never have listened to them. Or you might see someone say, you know, I don't remember that. Let me put that on and see what it's like. And if you give it more than 30 seconds, maybe it'll come back and it'll have some more value.
0: When uh, iTunes first came out, one of the first scripts that I was asked to write by a user was uh, he, he wanted to he wanted to delete all the music that had zero plays. he wanted to go through the library and anything he hadn't played, he wanted to delete. And I just thought that was insane. But I wrote it for him anyway. And it's actually, I think it's still up on the site. But I would never do that. No. I would never, you know, have a piece of music and then delete it, maybe hide it or put it on a disc and maybe take it out of iTunes and put it away someplace else. But I could never delete uh, something like that.
1: I I have a second iTunes library for all that stuff. In particular, because I reviewed classical CDs for maybe 10 years for a website called Music Web International, which I strongly recommend. It's a very good review site. And and I got hundreds of CDs and I reviewed so many of these things. And some of them were great and they're still in my collection. And others, I just, you know, just not worth remembering.
0: But you had that, you were the typical music reviewer. Like you see, you had piles and piles of CDs around, right? Yeah.
1: And and multiple versions of classical works to compare them to, because that's what you need to do with classical. I remember the good old days. Here, we're going to wax old again. The good old days of going record shopping. My mother used to shop in a department store called E.J. Corvette. Did you know that store? Oh, Corvettes, yeah. Yeah, there was one about, I don't know, a half hour from where we lived in Queens. Interestingly, the urban legend was that E.J. Corvette stood for eight Jewish Korean war veterans, (laughs) um, which isn't the case. Wikipedia says it was founded by Eugene Furkoff and Joe Zwillenberg. So that's the E and the J. I don't know why the Corvette came in. I'm not seeing that here. But it was your standard department store that sold everything from kitchenware to clothes and, and toys and stuff. But they had a record section and when my mother would go, I would sometimes go along for the ride and look at the record section and, you know, I'd have five bucks to buy a record. So I could only buy one and I had to pick a really good one. And... It was was hard, and that record was important. I'd take it home, and I'd put it on my Radio Shack turntable, and I'd listen to it over and over until I knew it by heart. I remember going to a Sam Goody in Forest Hills. This was about a 45-minute bus ride from where I was, but it was really the biggest record store within a short trip, without going into Manhattan, from where I was. And Sam Goody's was a big chain, and they had maybe a couple dozen stores in New York City alone, and lots of discounted records, new records. And I remember going there because I had 10 bucks to spend and I wanted to buy a couple of albums. And then later, what was really interesting was when I lived in Manhattan on the Upper West Side, the early 1980s, was going down to the record stores on Bleecker Street, the ones that had the used bins and the cutout bins and the import bins. That was a lot of fun. I'm going to link to an article on my website entitled Collecting Music in an Analog Age. And I wrote this about four years ago, talking about... The period when I was doing that a lot, particularly going after British music imports, the, the the factory records music and things like that. But there was a feeling of satisfaction of finding music like that. It was more than just buying a new record. It was finding something. I would read the British Music Press, New Musical Express and Melody Maker, and I'd see that a new band was formed by two guys from these other bands, or there's a new single by some band. And and me and my friends, we'd go in search of these things, and they had really important value.
0: Yeah, same for me. We used to f- try to find the, uh, you couldn't always find what you wanted at, at the chain stores. We had strawberries and newberry comics, and what are some of the other ones? Coconuts, peaches, places like that. Um, but you'd try to find the the mom and pop record stores. When I was a kid, we had, there was one great record store, single location called Beacon Records, and it was always special to go there with my father because they had everything. Um, sound effects, uh, you know, obscure classical music, just, you know, just everything that you could possibly look for. Um, and it was always a treat to go there. But otherwise, I would buy, I would go to the five and dime store also and, you know, buy a 45 or something like that. We had a lot of little music stores that were popular in Providence. Um but eventually the the chains came in as i mentioned strawberries um did you you don't think the strawberries got down to new york they were they had like 60 to 80 stores in new england at their peak um and they used to be a ticket outlet they started doing um dvds and video well i guess vhs stuff and then dvds later and they just got so big um they really put the little ones out of business beacon records was put out of business by by stores like that uh and then strawberries kind of overextended themselves too and they eventually went out of business the guy who started strawberries a guy named mo levi was arrested on extortion and loan sharking charges and uh he actually died before he he was sent to prison i think in 1990 um all of these record stores are are, are great because they're they they deal in cash And um, they attract a certain element, and uh, a lot of the the ones up here had connections with the mob and that sort of thing. Definitely strawberries did uh, for a time. Yeah, I don't
1: remember that in New York. I I would think maybe some of the hi-fi stores had mob connections. Crazy Eddie and all the places on 47th Street where you had the the camera stores and the hi-fi stores. I loved
0: going there. I loved going to those places. I went down there one time. This has nothing to do with record buying, but similar. It's... It's it's about buying stuff. I went down there to buy a Casio CZ synthesizer, which sold for about 100 bucks. But you could only get them in New York. You know, otherwise, you'd have to. Well, we used it as an excuse to go to New York. And we went to 47th Street. And we picked one up. And we were carrying it around with us, this synthesizer. It's about four feet long. You know, we're carrying it around. With, and we're going into other stores. And everybody came up to us. Everybody at the other store said, where did you get that? How much did you pay for it? Because they wanted to adjust their prices. They were doing, like, their marketing research by people. It was fabulous. I mean, just going to, you know, if you went to one place, you could get it cheaper at the PlayStation store if you you just, uh, you know, made the trip. That was a lot of fun. New York. Buying stuff like that. Yep, New York. Hey, can I just butt in and plug my new podcast for a second? You might as well. We're at the midpoint here, so this is where we would have a commercial. This is the ad read.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Together with Jeff Carlson, a fellow Take Control author and a guy who writes a lot about photography, we have launched a new podcast called Photoactive. It is a podcast about photography and the Apple ecosystem. We'll be talking about photography in general. We'll be talking about using the iPhone. We'll talk about apps on the Mac, on iOS. We released our first episode last week, and it's much more successful than we expected for the very first episode so if you're interested in photography, and if you use an Apple product, either a Mac or an iPhone or an iPad, check it out. The podcast is called Photoactive. You can find us at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. And
0: there'll be a new episode every Friday. You're going to you're gonna milk that, we dropped the M gag for all it's worth, aren't you?
1: Well, it's a good way for people to remember that it's not .com, which they're going to type in reflexively, but .co, which is not that common. The thing is it was seventy five hundred bucks to buy the dot com domain and like twenty-five to buy the dot co. <laughs> wow. So I figured okay, dot co is at least memorable and it does give me a good tagline that people can remember.
0: Drop the M for savings. Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so back to buying records, another thing that I noticed over the years is records devalued themselves. You know, and in some ways, there is this natural progression. When CDs came in, they were more expensive than LPs, which was just a scam from the record labels because they didn't cost any more to create. And then the price got lower and lower. And and in a market where there's more supply than demand, the price keeps getting lower. But it's more than that. There was a period when I was listening to a lot of Baroque opera, Handel, Rameau, Ludi, things like that. Love that music. And it would cost about 60 euros at the time to buy a Baroque opera on three CDs. That's a lot of money. Now you can get yeah. the same thing for maybe 20 euros, 20 pounds, 20 bucks. The the price of all these things has plummeted because people aren't buying them and they need to entice people. $20 or 20 pounds is an impulse purchase. 60, that's another story.
0: Well, that's more like an investment.
1: It is. now. In in exchange for the lower price, they often don't have booklets. And the ones that I was buying 10 years ago, they did have booklets with information about the operas, the sung text with translations as well. And generally, you don't get that anymore. You just get a little leaflet and maybe a a suggestion if you want to see the libretto, search for it on Google.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, why should they even provide it if it costs them to print it and things like that? So that Lowers the the price for them, their profit margin a little bit. But yeah, most of that stuff's available. It's all public domain, right?
1: Well, not the translations. The translations may be copyright because someone translated them recently. The originals are public domain. But it's true that, you know, if you've done a certain handle opera ten times, there's no point in making another booklet for the same thing because it's a waste of paper. It takes up more space. It's more weight to transport. I understand it. Some people don't. Some people get offended when they buy something like that and there's no sung text. Hyperion Records, they did this wonderful series of Schubert leader in 37 discs. And when they released it as a box set later, they didn't include all the sung text, but I think they include a PDF or there's a PDF that you can download on their website. I'll link to it in the show notes and, and confirm which it is. But you could get a hold of the text it's just that they didn't necessarily include all of this by default, which again, I think is a good idea because you may have people who already have these texts in another form and don't need it, or they have they like schubert's leader and they have a book which has the text and translations
0: well it's like um it's like it's almost like what Apple tried to do with like itunes l p they tried to you know they tried to recreate the l p experience digitally, and you know that that always here we come around to my, my analog digital paradigm clash again. But, you know, you, you're used to getting a booklet in a CD, and now you have to download a PDF as well as download the files, as well as download pictures, as well as, you know, any other information. All of that is available. It doesn't come with the package. There is no package. Um, so not having the physical media and maybe they're constant, you know, like I said, it, it costs money to print those books, it costs money to include all that extra stuff.
1: Well, I miss the booklets in a lot of discs. I, I don't miss it in an opera because I generally don't read the text as I listen to an opera.
0: Think about all the things you used to get in record albums. I mean, Exile on Main Street came with postcards. You used to get posters. You'd get pictures. The White Album came with 8 by 10 glossies of the Beatles in it and a huge wall poster, 3 by 4 foot... Po- uh, not 3 by 4 maybe it was 25 by 3 but... I mean, still, you got a lot of paper in there. Jethro Tull's Thick
1: as a Brick had a newspaper. I think The Clash of Sandinista had a big newspaper-like it had the lyrics on a big thing that folded out like a a big four-page newspaper. But yeah, so it was common to have more than just a record in a record. I I, I think we've really lost something. Of course, we can't go back in time. We can't change all this. But I think we've really lost something in the fact that record buying is no more a thing. It's not a, you don't go out with your friends, hey, let's go to the record store. You don't look forward to a new record coming out and having to go to the record store. You just Maybe set a reminder on your phone and go check it out online when it comes out. There, there is none of this thrill of the chase. There is none of this
0: satisfaction of finding something you've been looking for for a long time. There's no salon to go and hang out with your pals and and buy your concert tickets and buy your T-shirts and and posters and maybe some of that electronic gear. I mean, record stores, the one that's up here is Newbery Comics, where... They not only sold music, but they sold toys, and they sold all the gear and the action figures and things like that, and it became a really cool place to come and hang out, especially the original one on Newbury Street. That was a trip. I mean, when we wanted to buy records, we came up to Newbury Street and went to Newbury Comics. Um, it was just a cool place to go. There are no cool places like that to go and, and indulge in, in in all that physical media and the physical product. And the, Well, that's an interesting thought, too, the... uh the acquisitiveness, yeah, the physicality, yeah, of it. The physicality yeah. but the, also the the being around it. Uh, it was cool to be around it. Uh, that's yeah. interesting. I and and I've
1: mentioned that. many times that I spent a, a certain amount of time hanging out in a small record store, kind of like the book of the movie High Fidelity. And, and it's true that these were environments where you would meet like-minded people and would run into friends and you'd meet people you hadn't seen in a while and you would meet members of the opposite sex, perhaps, who would come in looking for a record and you'd be able to go over and say, well, you should try this record. It's really good. Um Or if you were friendly with the guy who owned the record store, you'd get to play all the records he had in the store. Say, well, put that one on. I want to hear that. And because even hearing a song back then was unique. you You couldn't hear In my record, I talk about things like Joy Division and the first New Order single. Now, you wouldn't hear that on the radio stations in New York. Maybe WNEW at night might have played it once. Maybe one of the college radio stations might have had that single, and you could call in and make a request. But how many times could you hear it? Whereas if you're in a record store that has it, you can talk the guy or the girl into playing it a few times so you get to know the song before you buy
0: it. I used to have a, a pretty good pal who ran a CD, u- new and used CD place, and he was right around the corner from a radio station I was working at, and I used to do his commercials, so I could go in, and if he didn't have what I wanted, he'd order it for me. Didn't even think twice about it, just, sure, I'll get it for, ne- for you next time. Well, week.
1: when you're talking about imports or rare things, then it's a little bit different. and And I did go through this period for a while. I don't like to say collecting because it wasn't that. It was needing to have the latest single by the bands that I liked. And and I would go out of my way to find them. And again, on Bleecker Street, there were a couple of record stores where they would have imports. But it, it was a constant question of, can I find this? If so, where can I find it? How much will it be? How important is it? But nowadays, imagine if we did have record stores, it'd just be a bunch of people standing around looking at their iPhones, maybe, at their phones, right? maybe streaming from their thing. Oh, check out this new song I got. And the person in the record store is sitting there lamenting the fact that he's not selling records because everyone's streaming on Apple Music and Spotify. Did you ever belong to any
0: record clubs? Ah,
1: get 10 records for $1 and they don't tell you they're going to send you four records a month and all that. For a penny. For a A penny. penny, yes. Plus postage and handling. I actually belonged to the Musical Heritage Society for a while. Now, that was a classical record club. And what they did is they relicensed recordings that were made in Europe and they released them on their own label with really simple, the, 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 the album covers had no artwork, they just had the name, the Musical Heritage Society logo, the name, maybe the, the track list.
0: I, I was also a Musical Heritage Society member. I, I don't know why. I guess I thought it would be an easy way to develop a, a classical collection, which it was. And they would send you, a, I guess, a new album a month, and then you could keep it and return it? Is that how it
1: worked? I think it, it was either one or two a month. Yeah, it was one or two a month, and you could keep them or return them. If you Google Musical Heritage Society and you look for images, you'll see the two types of album covers, the one with just text and the one with these really simple sort of black and white line drawings or or engraving type things. This is pre-CD, of course. The CD, they got a little bit fancier. I don't remember if it was one or two a month, and I really, I probably just kept them all because this was music that I wasn't that familiar with. So getting something, even if it was Vivaldi or Masterpieces of 20th Century Piano Music number 1 with music by Berg, Schoenberg, Stravinsky, and Webern, I probably would have kept them just because
0: it was something unexpected. I did that, too. I was surprised how many of them I kept. And of course, it's a pain, to have to send them back and that's what they're relying on. But I remember I got this wonderful thing on uh music for bassoon quartets and things like for instance the um <laughs> the theme music that was used for Alfred Hitchcock was originally a bassoon uh piece for I think five bassoons. Or at least this particular album was five bassoons. And I said, you know what? I may find a use for this sometime. I'm going to keep this. And I I you would get unusual things like that, but I also ordered a lot of Strauss. I, I'm nuts about Strauss waltzes. I just, Emperor Waltz, Tales of Vienna Woods, Blue Di- all that really? stuff. I love that stuff. You've never mentioned this before. Oh, yeah. I'm. I, it's just, it sounds so big and magnificent and emotional, and I really just like lying on the floor listening to Waltz music. Do, do you watch the New Year's
1: Day concerts? No, I don't. That I don't. they do from Vienna? You should. You can find them all on YouTube. It's It's a big production. It's sort of Andre Rieu style, but they use a real conductor, and they always cut away to, to dancers in the hall with long gowns and stuff. I not, guess not
0: I have seen – I've, I've seen Andre Rue a couple of times, and I chuckle no, but when he I not
1: No, he doesn't do it at the New Year's concert.
0: Oh, no. Um, the New I've Year's seen, concert is a, is a real conductor. But I've, I've seen his shows. They run them over here on public television yeah, every so no, often. That's, that's, I mean, they are over-the-top and extravagant, but it's really the only place to catch that kind of music. You know, oh, look, Andre Rue's on. I think I'll, I'll listen to some waltz music.
1: Yeah, we get the New Year's Day concert, I think, on the BBC here and on one of the public channels in France. I used to see it. It's very common. And I think they start selling the CD like the very next day, and they sell the DVD of it. And And I'm in a record-collecting group on Facebook, and I know that there are people who wait for that every single year and, and pre-order it. Actually, all you need to do now is go to Apple Music and look up the New Year's Day concert and you will probably
0: have dozens of them. I wonder how many they sell that way. For instance, I happened to see a there was a Fleetwood Mac concert that public television was running this weekend and I just threw it on and left it on. And they during the show, of course, they're asking you to, to give to the station, but they're also selling DVDs and CDs of Fleetwood Mac. And I'm thinking, who, who why would I, I don't know if I would do that. It was almost like watching a 20... Well, it was a 20-year-old performance, but it was almost like watching television from 20 years ago. You know, if you order now, you'll get the three-disc set and the and the and we'll throw the video in in a T-shirt or something and a tote bag.
1: I think there's a certain demographic that's going to buy those because, wow, I haven't heard Fleetwood Mac in decades, and I don't know what Spotify is, so they're going to buy it. I, I just looked on Apple Music. You can find a lot of these New Year's concerts. What you need to do is search for New Year's concert when you find one, click it, and then go to the albums you may also like, because they don't all come up in the search. And some of them are titled Neujahr's Concert. So they won't show up New Year's Concert. The 2017 concert was conducted by Gustavo Dudamel. He's a dude. Daniel Barenboim did one in 2014. Zubin Mehta in 2015. Maris Janssen's in 2016. It's a, it's a double CD, always. They look like they're an hour 45 to two hours. They've got polkas. They've got waltzes. They've got every. You'll love this. Mazurkas. I don't see any mazurkas in this one here, but a lot of polkas.
0: I'll take polkas. A lot of polkas. Shumpa shumpa yep. shumpa shumpa shumpa.
1: Well, we've lost something, haven't we? And, and you know, if you think about if you think about books as well, ebooks haven't taken over the way physical books have. But there is nothing like browsing in a bookstore. There's nothing like browsing in a record store and flipping through the bins and saying, "Wow, I remember that band. I haven't heard them in ages." oh, this is the guy who played guitar with whatever. And, you know, it, it's it's an experience rather than just, I had to search in iTunes to try and find New Year's concert and only a few came up and I had to find that sometimes it's called Neujahr's concert and
0: you have to adapt to all these things. You get down to the complaints about metadata. It's like when you had a CD or an LP, the metadata was right there on the tin. But now, as Andy, our friend Andy Dota bring him up again, has mentioned many times, metadata is a mess You can't find things. You can find things. Some things are different things. Some things are named different things. Concern it. It's just not the way it used to be. Youth is wasted on the wrong people. Get off my lawn. (laughs) Now we will present our next tracks, music that we've been listening to or plan on listening to. Kirk, what have you got?
1: For my next track this week, I have picked something that I recently bought on CD. It is a new release of John Fox's Metamatic. Now, I think I mentioned Metamatic as an extract pick a year ago. It's really one of my favorite albums of the 1980s. It was released in 1980, so it's 38 years old now. Something about this album, if you listen to it now, it sounds like it could have been written now and recorded now. There is a certain amount of rudimentary synthesizer skill because these are really the early days of, of synthesizers. I think he recorded this in a cupboard under a staircase someplace. And he had a few of these mini Moogs, you know, the ones with all the patch wires going in and out of them. But this is just such a great album. It's hard to overestimate how important it is and how influential it was in, in electronic music. John Fox had been in Ultravox and he was with them for three albums. And then he left just before the band had their big hit, the album Vienna, with the song Vienna. This was when Midge Orr took over as singer. I saw the band once in New York doing a show and it's like they've all got these slicked back hairstyles, and they're wearing these long gray coats on stage. At the time, it looked cool, but anyway, so this is a three-CD set. What's interesting is there had previously been a two-CD set some years ago, and so this includes alternate versions, demos, outtakes, and all that, which aren't always interesting, but it's all remastered, and it's got a bunch of art cards in it, I think a half a dozen of them, one of which is signed. It's a limited edition, and I think it only costs 16 pounds. Usually a signed limited edition is being sold at a premium. I think there's only 1,000 or 1,500 copies. So if you want one, get it. I'll link to Amazon. I'm pretty sure you can still get it on Amazon. And I'll also link to Apple Music for the previous two-CD version.
0: Doug, what's new for you this week? I'm a fan and admirer of Albert Lee, who is a Scottish-born guitar player. But he's really made a name for himself as uh, a great interpreter of American guitar playing. He plays rock and roll, uh, country rock, rockabilly. He has a, a, a zooped-up Chet Atkins style of playing. and He's incredibly innovative, and I've enjoyed his uh, session work. One of my favorite things he did as a as a studio guest was on Dave Edmonds' Repeat When Necessary. He does the guitar soloing in Sweet Little Lisa. Just amazingly, blazingly fast and fluid guitar playing. I just found out that he was in a band in the early 70s called Head, Hands, and Feet. Now, Head, Hands, and Feet was a name that I always remembered because I kind of liked it. I liked the name, but I never heard anything by them. And for some reason, I did associate them with the California rock sound, Grateful Dead sort of thing, uh, New Riders, but I never heard them. The other day, the name Head, Hands, and Feet popped into my head. I said, well, I'm going to pop over to Apple Music and see exactly what kind of music they did do." Well, it turns out Albert Lee is in Head, Hands, and Feet, and I had no idea until I listened to a few tracks and said, who are these guys? They're a British band who did American-style like I said earlier, rockabilly, rock and roll, fast fluid Chet Atkins guitar style. It's just an amazing record. It's a double album of this I guess you'd call it country rock, roots rock. Absolutely amazing. There's one track on it you've got to listen to if you if you like guitar playing at all. Listen to the song Country Boy, which performed by UK musicians. You'd swear they came right out of the South. And the guitar playing goes from incredible to super amazing in the song. It's just absolutely great. This was not their debut album. Their debut album was shelved for 20 years, and that didn't come out until the 90s. So this serves as their debut album. They didn't last for more than like two or three records, and they all went on and did their own things. As I said, Albert Lee... Went on to do lots of session work, lots of studio work, has his own band, put out his own albums, which I love. But this record is absolutely fabulous. You've got to give it a listen. Head, Hands, and Feet is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.